Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Many, many other signs and proofs of the resurrection were shown and given to the disciples, but these that we hear in the gospel were written so that we might believe. The Sunday following Easter day is the eighth day after Easter. It's the octave. And this day almost establishes for us the pattern of celebrating Sunday by Sunday the resurrection of Jesus and by gathering together as followers of Jesus on the Lord's day. It was... uh, very, very soon after um, the resurrection of Christ, the establishment of the church, that the early Christians, uh, all Judeans, um, began, in addition to observing the Sabbath on Saturdays, also gathering together on Sundays for the Lord's Day. And soon that became the universal um, pattern of the church as it spread beyond Jerusalem and Israel and into the broader bounds of the world. Christians distinguish themselves by gathering to worship on Sundays, the day of the Lord's resurrection. And so today, we establish that pattern for ourselves in the year. The first day of the week, which was Sunday, also became the eighth day. The pattern of creation, which was established in Genesis, the creation of the world on the first day, and uh, of various other things on day two, three, four, five, six, and the resting of God on the seventh, and then that pattern repeated. But that repetition of creation was, it had never seen the full completion of the stewards of that creation, i.e. a human being. Human beings had never actually come into their own and become the creatures God intended for them to be because we had gotten off course. But on one first day of the week, uh, 2,000-ish years ago, a new creation was established, in a sense, completing the old creation and beginning a new creation at the same time. And so Jesus rose both on the first day of the week and the eighth day, this mysterious continuation of creation beyond the pattern of seven that we had seen and beginning something new in continuity with the old. And so today, we observe the eighth day after the mysterious first and eighth day. And so this is why we as Christians gather together on Sundays to worship. This Sunday is really interesting in its um, theme. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the reality of the Lord's resurrection. We as Christians know that this happened, we believe it, and we celebrate it. But why do we know that it happens? Why do we believe it? Well, that's the theme of this Sunday. The purpose of this Sunday is to establish us in our faith in the resurrection. Of course, in St. Thomas, we have the uh, ultimate example of doubting the resurrection, only then to be uh, confirmed in the faith of the resurrection, right? And Thomas really gets um, a, a rough reputation. He's known as doubting Thomas sometimes. But he's also the first of any of the disciples to call Jesus, God. It's from the mouth of St. Thomas that the church has her first confession of Jesus Christ as 
God incarnate. None of the other disciples, St. Peter's, uh, you know, confession that Jesus is the Christ, that's obviously important. But St. Thomas's is really, really spectacular. So he did doubt for a moment, but so did all the disciples, frankly. They all doubted until later in the evening on Easter, the Lord appeared to them. So Thomas did nothing that the other disciples didn't do. He only didn't have the benefit of seeing the Lord that first Easter evening. It took another week. It took the eighth day. And so eight days after Easter, when Thomas encounters the risen Lord, the story of this happening is given to us in our lectionary. So when the women encountered Christ at the tomb, the angelic messengers saying that Jesus is risen, the disciples hiding in fear, you know, earlier that day, and when they finally saw Jesus in the flesh, they didn't know how to handle it at first. It took it took something new. They had no categories for this. They had no paradigm of resurrection life. They had heard of people coming back from the dead. We heard it in our morning prayer. Uh, the prophet Elijah was able to raise a, a, a little boy back from the dead. They had seen Jesus raise people from the dead, both recently dead and even his friend Lazarus, the four days dead. And so they knew about coming back from the dead. What they didn't know was the kind of resurrection life that Jesus was establishing now. They needed a new instruction in this. They needed a new paradigm. They needed to be reborn. Like newborn babies who desire pure, spiritual, reasonable milk so that they may grow up into salvation, as St. Peter would eventually put it in his epistle. And as our introit says this morning, Right then in the upper room, that's what the disciples were. They were like newborn babies who had to start at the beginning. They had to truly believe in what they were seeing before they could begin to work out and live out the ramifications of it. And that's where today the church invites us to begin as well. Most of us have built our lives on the foundation of the resurrection, and we you know, get up in the morning on Sundays and come to church because we have that faith. But even for us, it's often necessary to go back to that upper room, to the empty tomb, to the road to Emmaus, to the shore of the lake in Galilee, to the Mount of Ascension, and to re-encounter the risen Jesus, to reestablish and to refresh our foundations. From time to time, we need to become, again, like newborn babies and feed on the pure, spiritually, divinely reasonable milk of our faith. And that's what our introit is inviting us to do today. Quasimodo geniti infantis is the Latin. So today is sometimes known as Quasimodo Sunday. If you ever wondered where the hunchback of Notre Dame got his name, right here from the introit of the octave of Easter, Quasimodo. So today, like newborn babies, let's turn away from, for a moment, some of the more mature spiritual food of our faith, and just look at the earliest nourishment of our faith, the earliest things that's required of us to be grounded and built upon this reality central to Christianity. Christ is risen. Our faith stands or falls on this. We have a stubbornly historic faith, one that cannot be generalized or spiritualized away from the grounded reality of these historical facts. And that can sound intimidating if we're not, you know, sure how to establish these facts, and it should be. We should, we should 
be eager and anxious to establish our faith on these facts. It's why it's important to, to diligently work to uh, affirm their veracity. And we actually fully understand Thomas's very rational response when he's told of the encounter that the other disciples had, and we should be as rational as Thomas in our approach, actually. So what evidence do we have 2,000 years later of the historic resurrection of Jesus? One of the things that I remember Father Ben really being annoyed at is all the Easter sermons that base their um, proof in the resurrection on the empty tomb. The empty tomb doesn't in itself mean that Jesus is risen. It means like, you know, the, the leaders of the synagogues there in Jerusalem and the temple were afraid of in the first place. Let's put a guard on the tomb so that the disciples can't come steal his body and say something about him being risen. They knew that an empty tomb most likely by itself only means that the body of Jesus was stolen, right? And so the empty tomb is not proof in itself, but it's not nothing either. If the tomb had not been empty, if the body of Jesus had been there, well, that's direct proof and evidence that he did not rise. But there was an empty tomb, and that was just enough to make the, the leaders in Jerusalem afraid because they could not account for the body of Jesus and its whereabouts. Where did it go? There were, after all, Roman guards there. There was, after all, a massively heavy stone. And we're talking about one day, one day that they were not able to keep him in the grave. Friday evening, uh, Saturday, and then very early in the morning on Sunday, the tomb is opened, the stone is rolled away, and the guards were basically passed out from fear and made like men dead, the gospel says. So that's something. <laughs> the empty tomb is a place to start. But beyond that, what else do we have? Well, we have good proof, A, that uh, Jesus actually died, and so he didn't walk out of the tomb. There was, you know, some historians have put forth the fainting theory. Oh, he just... He just fainted on the cross, and they thought he was dead. Okay, well, we, we have, first of all, the Romans know how to kill people. They were really good at it. When you nail somebody to a cross, and then you pierce their side with a spear, and blood and water gushes out, they know what a dead man is. And Jesus, in his human flesh, was dead. They put a dead body in his tomb. So let's go back to the veracity of the testimony in the Gospels themselves. The Gospels, well, the letters of the New Testament writers are the earliest documents we have. The Gospels come a little bit after those, but all of these are some of the best, well-documented, historical, ancient sources that we have about anything. We have better historical, critical, literary evidence of the uh, fact of Jesus' life than we do of Julius Caesar, to be frank. The historical scriptures are just so reliable <laughs> compared to uh, the other historical documents that we have that that's really important to understand. So given their reliability, look at the belief of the disciples. The stories of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels are not, these have not been whitewashed to make the disciples look good, all right? It includes all kinds of embarrassing details, like the fact that they were hiding like frightened children. 
um, the fact that women were the first witnesses of Christ who couldn't be relied on in courts at the time to establish any kind of testimony. And yet, that was just how it, they were just recording facts. If they were making this stuff up, they would not have made women the first witnesses to the resurrection. They admit their initial disbelief. So it's not like they're trying to make themselves look like they were super faithful men. All of them disbelieved. There are contradictory um, actions of Christ, at least contradictory from the categories that we would think of, like, for example, him walking into locked rooms, through doors, um, disguising himself so he isn't recognizable to some of his disciples who knew him very well. These are things that, like the disciples initially thought, maybe a ghost could do. But then we also see him presenting his body to St. Thomas. We see him eating breakfast with them on the seashore. These are things that an embodied person does. So he's acting both like a spirit and also like uh, an embodied human. What is this bizarre resurrection life? The disciples didn't know. They're just telling us what happened. Also, the fact that there are records and the gospel writers admit over the course of 40 days, there were so many things that he did, so many proofs of his resurrection that we can't write them all down. We included the ones that you need <laughs> to establish your belief on, but trust us, there were a lot more. We see the changing of skeptics who didn't see the risen Lord, like uh, James, who became the uh, Bishop of Jerusalem, uh, Saul, the um, persecutor of the early Christians, they had encounters of Christ after his resurrection that convinced them and changed their direction. We have John and Matthew, who were eyewitnesses who give their testimony. Then we have St. Paul, James, Jude in uh, secondary type uh, witness testimony, secondary documentary evidence. Um, we have the circumstantial evidence of early Christian practices based on the resurrection, like baptism and Eucharist. These are things that Christians were doing early on because of their belief in Christ. So this was not a late belief. This was the very foundation of the followers of the way, what in Antioch would be called Christians, little Christs, followers of, of the Christ. And we have the attestations of non-believers, who are telling us that, yes, all these Christians, this is their belief and this is how they act. People like Josephus, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Multiple eyewitnesses found in primary accounts and recorded there like Mary Magdalene, all the disciples, including Thomas, and at one time over 500 of the disciples seeing Jesus at once, all together. So, not to mention the fact that all of these disciples who give their eyewitness testimony also committed to this all the way to death, to their graves. Not just to a quick death, but a lot of them persecution first. So this is a reality that transformed the lives of people. If they didn't believe that this was the case, Christianity would never have taken off. It just never would have gotten started. There were other messiahs who were put to death or crucified or otherwise shown to have their ministry ended, and then that was it. They did not have groups of followers that continued worshiping them as God. <laughs> 
for generations afterwards. This was unique. What happened on Easter Day was unique in all of the world. That's why we call it the first and the eighth day. It begins a new creation. It is the apex of the story of this world. It's the pivot point on which all of the cosmos now rotates. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, changes everything. And if we don't have our faith firmly established on this reality, then what are we doing? Where, where are we going? What does any of it mean? Everything is meaningless unless Christ is risen. But Christ is risen. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.